Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. A very large blessing to you today. I hope your day is going well. I'm excited that we're going to have some time together this afternoon. I've been looking forward to it all day, and now here it is. The show is going to be great. Rob Blue is going to be joining me in just a second, and then Dr. Greg Borgon is going to be joining me. We're going to have all kinds of wonderful Bible teaching in hour two, so that's what's ahead. I have my Bible open in the first chapter of James. In verse 12, it says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial... Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So what a nice way to start Tuesday. Rob Bluey is my uh, Washington, D.C. correspondent. He's the executive editor at the Daily Signal. Rob, welcome to the show. It's good to be with you, Bill. Thanks for having me back. You know, there's so much going on right now. I'm going to let you decide where you want to start. I would imagine the border crisis. Well, that is a big one. So we we might as well start there. It is... um, uh, well, the fact that you called it a crisis bill is turning out to be quite a controversial thing in Washington. <laughs> That's true. Uh, because uh, members of the Biden administration have refused to use the word crisis, and uh, and they are eventually coming around to it, I think, because the news media coverage of it has just exploded. Of course, that in itself is, uh, is a controversy because uh, this administration has uh, decided to restrict the media's access, um, and it appears that they are, are going to be reversing that decision. But I think it was troubling, and you had a number of Democrats who were calling out the Biden administration for uh, for trying to clamp down on that. And you had um, a Democrat who actually released photos of what it's like inside of those facilities so uh, the world could actually see uh, what's going on. So uh, definitely some discord and, uh, and, uh, and, and not a clear picture about how we get through this situation. I think one of the things that's, uh, that's certainly troubling is the change that the administration has made in so many of the policies from, from the previous administrations, like or dislike President Trump. We certainly didn't have this, uh, this situation um, uh, quite as bad when he left office. And I think the, the challenge that I, I hear from the experts is that it's only going to get worse as the weather gets warmer. So mm-hmm. we have a situation now where uh, you have a number of unaccompanied children uh, who are in need of care, and we've got to do our best as a compassionate people to, to figure out a way to do that while also trying to persuade their parents not to send them across the border. Rob, we know for certain that bad people will exploit opportunities. What are we? What do we know about what's going on in that department? Well, uh, so a couple of things. I mean, number one, it is uh, it, it is quite clear that there are, are people who are intent on on using this crisis. Um, uh, to uh, to do human trafficking, which is just just terrible. That obviously uh, affects a large number of, of children, and it's uh, it's something that we know that uh, that people take advantage of, and um, and so that's something I've, I've interviewed people who have been victims of human trafficking, Bill, and it's just heart wrenching to to hear their stories and how their lives were were so deeply impacted uh, by that experience. So that is uh, that's one example. I think that there are other malicious uh, actors. I think that ultimately we have to remember the people who are crossing the border are looking for a better life mm-hmm. in, in many cases. And uh, they themselves 
um, you know, have uh, have tried to escape uh, horrible circumstances in, in their own country. Uh, one of the policies that the Trump administration put in place was called remain in Mexico so that, uh, for instance, if they were coming from um, Central American countries through Mexico, that that was uh, where they had to stay. So that was, you know, where they would seek asylum. Uh, many of them now are just crossing right through Mexico and coming to the United States. And uh, and that is why we find ourselves in the situation that, that we do. Uh, typically, when you when you want to request asylum from a country, you would go to the country that is closest on, on your route uh, to do so. And, and so that's, um, that's one of the factors that, uh, that we see at play now. Uh, it's going to be an issue that I think it gets uh, more and more attention. It's not necessarily the issue that this president uh, wants to focus on. Uh, he is, uh, you know, really trying to sell the COVID relief plan right now. And, and this is getting in the way. Uh, news coverage has spiked on this, uh, not only in conservative media, but across the board. And I think for good reason. It's, uh, it's something that we need to figure out. I heard the administration is going to spend $86 million putting people up in hotels. That's right. Uh, that's uh, that's one of the contracts they, they did sign. Well, they're just out of space in, in a lot of the other uh, facilities along the border. And when people see uh, the conditions that uh, the many of them find themselves in, uh, they, I think, recognize that uh, this is uh, this is not ideal. Although, frankly, Bill, I think it's probably better than being out there um, Crossing the, the the treacherous terrain of, of Mexico and, uh, and and the kind of the criminal elements that uh, they might encounter along their their route to the United States. So, uh, so there's a, there's a process that uh, that the United States has. Uh, Customs and Border Protection obviously brings them in um, when uh, when they cross the border, and then uh, the Department of Health and Human Services takes over responsibility. And there are certain rules they have to follow in terms of the the amount of time that they spend in custody and, and where they're taken. So, uh, and not not a great solution, and certainly the system was not built uh, to to handle this many all at once. Um, and I think that that's uh, what, uh, what what we find most troubling is that it didn't have to be this bad. But the signals that the Biden administration sent, I think, have exacerbated the problem. And uh, and I think that uh, they caught them off guard, frankly, and that's why they are are unprepared uh, for for what's uh, what's happening. Mm-hmm. Rob, are we on schedule for the president's press conference on Thursday? It appears we are okay. the first press conference uh, of his uh, of his administration. Obviously, happening at a later date than many presidents in the past uh, would uh, would traditionally do. I think that the uh, the news media was a bit spoiled with Donald Trump, where he would uh, frequently interact with them every time he was getting on air, uh, Marine One, the helicopter, or uh, just another setting. And uh, this White House is much more disciplined. And mm-hmm. so it'll be interesting to watch. I think that this uh, being that uh, it's, it's taken so long for the White House to host this press conference, uh, there will be a lot of uh, focus on it, rightfully so. I think the journalists will uh, be cl- it'll be interesting to watch the journalists to see how they approach him as they mm-hmm. uh, compared to how they've done in the past with uh, with Trump or Obama or Bush. So, yes, uh, definitely keeping our, our eyes peeled on that bill. And uh and it's uh, it's been a busy news week. Of course, a couple of tragic shootings. Uh, first, um, uh, you know, in in Georgia and uh, now in Colorado. So uh, the the president has come out and said that uh, he wants to uh, put his attention on the assault weapons ban, uh, something that he supported when he was a member of the Senate. Uh, so I expect that that will get a lot of play. I expect immigration will be a, a topic that's front and center. Of course, COVID. And uh, and there's other news, Bill. I mean, geez, we just are scratching the surface this week. A three trillion dollar infrastructure plan is apparently in the works. Wow. Um, of course, we just spent two trillion on COVID relief, uh, which is part of five trillion. It seems like we 
we can forget about the billions uh, and we've just uh, gone to the trillions. I'm not sure where all this money is coming from, uh, but it seems that uh, this uh, this administration is is determined um, to to do whatever it can uh, to to juice this economy and and uh, this big infrastructure bill being the latest thing that's under discussion. You know, Rob, I, I don't even know how to respond to these numbers. I mean, if we add another five trillion to the, to our debt, who who how do we pay for that? How who absorbs that debt? Well, I mean, there's a few ways. I mean, if you listen to some of the the folks on the left, I mean, they would just say we should mint a trillion dollar platinum coin, <laughs> and that would solve our problems. <laughs> I'm not sure I I I, uh, I understand that one, but uh, but you know that is that is an argument that they're saying that we can just print more money. And certainly we've seen other countries do that. I mean, Venezuela famously decided to do that, and they had horrible inflation, and, and, uh, and it destroyed the economy. So, yes, I think it is wise to be careful about uh, whatever, whatever approach that we do take. Um, but, you know, the real answer, I think, is, uh, is the people that are going to pay for this are future generations, so, so people who might not even be born yet. But it's, uh, it's a huge consequence, and it's something that we need to refocus our attention on, uh, particularly after four years of of uh of donald trump who didn't pay much attention to uh to spending um he he didn't notoriously said he was going to veto these bills and would always end up signing them so it was disappointing i think for for those who um, are more fiscally conservative that he didn't take stronger action against them and certainly you can't expect uh somebody like joe biden who uh who has a, a tax and spend record throughout his career to to do that so it's left uh, up to individual citizens in, in many respects. And, Bill, I think the best way to think about this is if we expect our families and, and businesses to balance their budgets, we should expect our government to do the same. And there are ways to do that. We've seen proposals. We've put them together uh, at, at the Heritage Foundation. We've certainly highlighted them on the Daily Signal. So um, let's get back to, to, to basics and, and figure out um, how to do that. Um, and spending a bunch of money on an infrastructure bill is probably not the best way to get started, but uh, that seems like the path that they're going to go down. So I, I expect it'll be contentious just like this uh, past bill was. Mm-hmm. Rob, let's talk about the filibuster. Well, the filibuster, uh, for your listeners who might not be familiar with it, is a, a Senate uh, procedure which requires uh, 60 votes to, to basically overcome the, the hurdles. It, it helps protect the minority. Mm-hmm. It gives them rights. Um, to, to, to raise concerns about things. It keeps uh, the Senate different from the House. Otherwise, you know, what, what, what do we have uh, if not just another majoritarian rule? So the, the filibuster has been something that's been supported by Republicans and Democrats alike. Whenever that party is in the minority, they tend to like the filibuster. So Democrats currently, it's a 50-50 split in the Senate. The Democrats have the tie-breaking vote with Vice President Harris. So uh, they're in a position now where they want to get rid of it. And uh, the Democrats have uh, have changed the rules in the past. They changed the rules for for judges when Obama was president. Um, And, of course, Republicans have changed them as well uh, with uh, the confirmation of Supreme Court Justice uh, Neil Gorsuch uh, initially. So, uh, you know, uh, rules uh, can can be changed. But I think this was this is an important rule to preserve uh, because otherwise our country will look radically different. And uh, we expect that everything from the assault weapons uh, bill, uh, the limitations on Second Amendment, to uh, limitations on your, your speech um, with, uh, with H.R. 1, uh, the, the bill that would, would certainly strip away um, some of the, the things that we have come to know in terms of uh, election laws in this country, the Equality Act, which I know we've talked about on your show in the past, which would um, radically transform uh, girls' sports and, um, 
and, and usher in a, a, a whole set of changes for, for, for kids in schools and uh, who can use locker rooms and bathrooms. So these are just some of the proposals that, that we hear about. And, uh, and it seems that if Democrats don't get their way on the filibuster, they'll use another Senate tactic called budget re- reconciliation in which they can get some of these bills through, uh, particularly the, the spending bills, on a, on a 51-vote uh, basis. And so they're uh, trying to operate clever. Uh, I think that they, they recognize that these, this first window of time is important to get things done, and, uh, and they're, they're doing so, I think, uh, in some ways, um, jeopardizing the reputation of, of the institution, an institution which a lot of Americans uh, hold with, uh, with very little regard already. So I'm not sure that breaking it even more is, uh, is the right approach. Mm-hmm. When we come back from break, I'm going to ask Rob Bluey maybe to explain why it took so long for the truth about New York's nursing home deaths to come to light and maybe what's next for Governor Andrew Cuomo. We'll take a short break and be right back with uh, Rob Louie. Rob Louie, my Washington, D.C. correspondent. I always like to find out what's going on in our nation's capital. Rob, let's talk about why it took so long for the truth about New York's nursing home deaths to come to light. And what do you think is next for Andrew Cuomo? Well, we have a uh, fantastic interview on The Daily Signal today with the Empire Center for Public Policy, which is uh, a New York-based research organization uh, that has looked into this and has attempted to get to the bottom of, of exactly the question you asked, Bill. Um, unfortunately, they were stymied for, for uh, quite a long time when they filed a Freedom of Information Act request seeking uh, the number of deaths in, in these facilities. And, uh, and I think that we, we now know why, because the, uh, the state was not providing accurate and truthful information. In fact, the New York Attorney General, um, in her own investigation, came out and, and essentially found that there were twice as many nursing home deaths due to COVID-19 in New York than had actually been reported. So um, the Empire Center has tried to get to the bottom of this, and uh, it's something that I think we will continue to hopefully get more information on as the New York Attorney General and others in the state uh, closely uh, examine what's what's going on. Uh, this is a great example of, of a question that you know I, I just confounds me as to why the news media in New York didn't uh, put more attention on this. Uh, instead, there were fawning stories all about Andrew Cuomo and uh, how he's the most popular governor in the country and all the great things that he was doing. Of course, the uh, the nightly entertainment with he and his brother on CNN. And so, what comes next for him? Well, I think that in some ways the um, I mean, he, he has refused to resign in, in spite of the fact that almost every Democrat, both in Washington and New York, has asked him to do so, um, kind of pulling um, the same tactic as, as Virginia's governor did a few years ago when uh, he had the blackface scandal and made those uh, gross and just outrageous comments about uh, murdering babies after they were born. And so I think that uh, this is this is a, an approach that politicians will sometimes take. Now, that's not to say Cuomo will ultimately be able to survive, because I think once some of these investigations run course, uh, he may be done. However, um, you know, he uh, he has a decision to make about whether he's going to run for another term as governor. And there are certainly a lot of people in his own party who want him to see want to see him back away and uh, and, and simply retire. I'm not sure what he's going to do. Uh, I think that he's a bold enough person uh, that he he may decide that he wants to go for it another time and uh, see what the voter what the will of the voter is are. But I hope they'll keep uh, things like this nursing home scandal in uh, top of mind. 
uh, when they're making that decision. Yeah, I hope they do too. So I remember reading about the Spanish flu 100 years ago, and it ran with the first wave and the second wave, I think a total of 11 months, and the report said it literally stopped overnight. And now I'm, I'm praying that's what happens with COVID as well in April, but I think, is there a return of lockdowns in Europe right now? There is, yes. Um, and, and I think that it is something to, to keep a close eye on. Of course, we remember that a year ago, Bill, we were dealing with a situation when things were getting out of hand in places like Italy. Um, the United States was, was keeping a close eye on what was happening in Europe uh, because, uh, <laughs> well, soon enough, we found out that it was uh, quickly spreading in the United States. And so I think it would behoove us to, to do so again. We should um, not uh, we should we should take the signs from from what's happening in Europe and, and keep a close eye on things here. Of course, I think we're in a slightly different position in the United States. Uh, we've we've done a, really a remarkable job of getting shots in arms and people vaccinated. Uh, not as well as I think you know it, it could be run in, in every single uh, jurisdiction and state. I think that those who uh, have absolutely needed to get the vaccine because they are either older or they're frontline workers or they may have some pre-existing conditions uh, have largely been able to do so. I think the, the larger population of adults, people like me, you know, will still be waiting quite a while um, before it's our turn in line. Um, but it's uh, it's important to, for us to keep an eye on things that are happening across the globe so we can be prepared in the event that another wave happens. And I think it's really important for us to uh, to still be responsible. Um, I've been spending a lot more time in the office. I'm, I'm talking to you today from Capitol Hill, um, mm. where uh, it's quiet um, in the office. Uh, there's uh, not nearly uh, the, the crew that would normally be here um, pre, pre-pandemic, but it's encouraging to see um, uh, a lot of changes. Uh, first of all, Bill, uh, the fence has come down. Um, oh, nice. So we had we had talked about that in the past. The the fence that had surrounded Capitol Hill here in Washington D.C. is gone. You can um, uh, well, for the most part. I mean, it's it's uh, the, the space is opened up again. People can can use the Capitol grounds. They don't have to go through these checkpoints. Um, I don't have to take <laughs> a convoluted way to the, get to the parking garage. So you know, it is uh, it is ho- hopefully a sign that things are returning to normal. And um, and uh, just another indication that uh, we're we're on the way to recovery, but uh, we're probably not quite there yet. Yeah. So, Rob, is there a way that we can inhibit the spread of fake news? Yeah. Well, there's an interesting new study bill that uh, that addresses this, and and one of my colleagues, Anthony Kim, writes about it uh, for the Daily Signal. Uh, it's uh, it, it you know really interesting about um, uh, how free enterprise and economic freedom will help us combat this. And of course, I should should note that the Heritage Foundation does publish uh, our annual index of economic freedom, which which ranks countries around the globe uh, by their their economic freedom. Well, the thing is, I think not only do we see, we see a correlation here between economic freedom and press freedom or freedom of expression, if you will, uh, because a, a free press can really only exist in an environment that is free after all. And so it's really encouraging to see that, uh, th- that this study confirmed a, what, what we've been talking about a, a lot, uh, particularly ahead of this week's hearing on Capitol Hill. So in two days, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and, uh, and will be back on Capitol Hill to talk about misinformation. And I think at that hearing, you're going to hear a lot of people who, who want them to crack down and censor more and more content. And I think that this is, um, this is the opposite of freedom. I think the American people should be able to see the content that they want to see on social media platforms. And, um, and they need to uh, obviously 
take actions, uh, content that is, is outside of the uh, – is harmful and dangerous or threatening or bullying and all of those things. But I think, you know, just because you don't agree with a, a particular viewpoint, you know, it shouldn't be censored. And, and unfortunately, I think more often than not, we're, we're finding ourselves in a situation where – uh, our lawmakers uh, simply just want to shut down the speech that is uh, the opposite of theirs. And so I'll be closely watching what happens at that hearing this week, particularly because it'll be one of the first opportunities during the Biden administration uh, for these big tech executives to come under fire and uh, and see how um, how this new administration might respond to it. Rob, have you thought much about the Derek Chauvin trial? He is the police officer um, w- that was uh charged in the death of George Floyd? Well, certainly have, Bill. I mean, I've been following it uh, as, uh, as, as a story that, uh, you know, obviously had tremendous impact on, on all of our lives last year, uh, the death of George Floyd, that is. And, um, and I think that it's incredibly difficult to find a jury um, that, uh, that can be unbiased uh, and, and hear the, the case. I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, those, that those jurors exist out there, and I'm hoping that um, – you know, like like everybody who stands trial, they can uh, be subject to to the the laws of this country and and receive that fair trial that that they deserve. But um, there's a lot at stake. Um, certainly, uh, many uh, many times when these cases go to trial or a grand jury, you know, they will ultimately uh, not not pursue them. And I think it'll be interesting to see uh, what the ultimate outcome is here, and uh, and the reaction to that uh, could be significant. I know that it's probably top of your mind. Um, given where it's taking place and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and certainly some of the things that, that are happening in the community there. Don't you think it's interesting timing that the city of Minneapolis awards the Floyd family $27 million in advance of the trial? It, it was interesting timing. I, I, I certainly uh, didn't expect it to happen uh, quite <laughs> just, just as things were getting underway, but, I mean, it, it certainly um, – I mean, that, that goes to, to, I think, the heart of, you know, whether or not um, the jurors can, can ma- you know, make an impartial judgment here, um, because obviously that news could, could certainly uh, persuade them that uh, the city was at fault. And, and I think that, uh, you know, what we, can, what we ho- hope for is uh, to get the truth. And, uh, and I think that that's, um, that's certainly something that's at stake, and hopefully the judge and the judicial system there will, will afford us that opportunity. For sure, Rob, we have a lot to be praying about when it comes to our country and our neighborhoods and our communities and our elected officials and everything else that's going on certainly is a time to be prayerful and mindful of loving our neighbors and and loving each other. It certainly is, Bill. I think particularly in the season of Lent and as we come Mm -hmm. up uh, to to Easter, I mean, that is something that's uh, certainly on my mind and I'm I'm glad you you brought it up. I I, I told you before, I just love the the 31 days um, of kindness. I I get those emails from Faith Radio and it just brightens my day uh, with those suggestions. And I think that if we all took those to heart, uh, we'd all be be better people and we'd uh, we'd be a better country as a result of it. So I'm hoping that prayer is is in the hearts of, of all your listeners listeners today and um, and that uh, that we can overcome some of these challenges we face. Amen. Rob, have a wonderful week, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday. Thanks, Bill. You bet. Rob Louie's been my guest, executive editor at The Daily Signal. We're going to take a little break, but not for long. And then when we come back, Dr. Greg Borgon is going to be with me. We're going to talk about the stoning of Stephen. We're going to open our Bibles to Acts chapter 7, verses 20 through 36. So you can do that. We'll be right back.
get our Bibles open to Acts chapter 7. My guest is Dr. Greg Borgon. He's a ministry director, consultant, adjunct professor, and author. He's written books like A A Rattling of Sabres, Preparing Your Heart for Life's Battles, Papa's Blessings, The Gift That Keeps Giving, Setting Your Course, How to Navigate Life's Journey, and Leadership Beef Jerky Principles and Practices You Can Chew On. (laughs) Greg, welcome. Well, it's good to be with you again, Bill. As we were talking about the... uh, context of today's uh, what we're going to study i already blew it because we're going to talk about before stephen was stoned (laughs) yeah i mean you know stephen uh introduces us to some uh you know information about moses we wouldn't have gotten out of the book of exodus and i think within this this story and this narrative and this recounting of moses's life by uh, uh stephen or stephen um, we can draw some lessons from that about uh, our own journey in terms of uh, being a reluctant leader like Moses was. So we're talking about uh, lessons that's in the story that will apply to us today. Yes, exactly. This sounds exactly. interesting. Let's get going. Yeah. All right. So uh, for those that may be following uh, in, in their Bible, Stephen was selected to take over some of the uh, what we might perceive to be the mundane responsibilities of taking care of uh, people uh, who were needy or were needing of food and so forth. And so what they did was is they made a decision to select several people, which actually fills the role of what we would call today as, as a deacon. So the choosing of Stephen, it actually begins in Acts uh, chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained, the uh, the uh, Hebraic Jews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of spirit and wisdom. Uh, we will turn this responsibility over to them, and we'll give, you, uh, give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So this proposal, it says, please the whole group. They chose uh, Stephen, or Stephen, um, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip and so forth, several others. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now we, the story picks up where Stephen, uh, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. It says, in uh, beginning with verse 9, chapter 6, opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of um, Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Caesarea and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified this fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Notice all the references to Moses in the lead up to um, his testimony about him. 
So verse 15, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Would that be said of you and I, Bill? (laughs) (laughs) Hardly. All right. Stephen's speech at the Sanhedrin. So then uh, he begins to catalog a series of events um, and historical narrative that began with Abraham and it moves on to Isaac, then to Jacob, then the 12 patriarchs, then to Joseph then to Egypt and about the famine and about how the Hebrews increased over those 400 years uh, that they were there. And then he leads into Moses. And so just uh, for the sake of clarity, we'll step back a second. Moses was a Levite, the son of Amram. He was hidden in a small basket, as you may recall. He discovered and adopted and was adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh. He learned in all the wisdom of Egypt. That's important. I want to underscore that because we'll get back to this. His loyalty uh, to his race. Um, He takes the life of an Egyptian taskmaster, flees from Egypt, finds refuge among the Midianites, um, joins himself to Jethro, uh, the priest at Midian, marries his daughter, Zipporah. He has one son, Gershom. He is the herdsman for Jethro in the desert of Horeb. And he has a vision of a burning bush And God reveals to him his purpose to deliver the Israelites and bring them into the land of Canaan. And then he's commissioned as the leader of the Israelites. That's an outline that's taken directly from the Nays Topical Bible. Let's pick up the story, though, because we're focusing on Moses here. Acts chapter 7, verses 20 through 22. So this is what the passage says. At that time that Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. So it's interesting to think of what might have been meant by that, mm-hmm. no ordinary child. It goes on to say, for three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And notice this, and was powerful in speech and action. So here we have... Um, a, a declaration that he was brought up under the best tutors that Egypt had to offer. He was wise beyond his years. Um, he, he was taught in all of the uh, ways uh, of wise men, um, and he ended up attracting or being educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians in powerful in speech, speech and action. And then we turn to Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, this is the Lord now calling him to his task. Oh, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Now, wait a minute. Didn't we just read in Acts chapter 7 where he was brought up by Pharaoh's daughter and was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians? And notice this in Acts, it says, and was powerful and speech and action. Now he's declaring, well, I'm sorry, you've called the wrong person, Lord. I'm just, I'm not eloquent. And so there's a contradiction, isn't there, Bill? Sounds like a conflict of some kind. (laughs) He was a reluctant leader. Mm -hmm. I mean, so many of us, first of all, um, don't take on the mantle of leadership. We don't think we're leaders. Some of us know we're leaders, and we were born leaders. Some of us were mentored to be a leaders, and some of us were kind of forced into a leadership role. Um, and then you have what's called these reluctant leaders who don't believe they're a leader at all. 
But as we've talked about in the past on your show, anytime you make a decision on the behalf of another individual, you're leading. Mm. God calls us to lead our families. You can be a leader and a follower at the same time. So here Moses is declaring, trying to back away from this responsibility God gives them by declaring something that's absolutely not true, as if God wasn't cognizant of the history that preceded this discussion with with Moses. Don't you find that interesting? I do find that interesting. What category are we putting Moses in, in the leadership department? A reluctant leader. Reluctant leader, okay. Yeah. I mean, he's even trying to shy away from it altogether. And you could probably say of him, not only is he a reluctant leader, but he was forced into leadership against his own will. So this seeming, uh, seemingly a, a contradiction between how he was brought up and what the Bible says he had gained great wisdom, was eloquent in speech. Now he's claiming he's not. Mm, interesting. Uh, so with the term ordinary, by the way, what it's really referencing in this passage uh, he was handsome, uh, probably urbane, pleasant to look upon, uh, He, when it says he was no ordinary person. So in other words, there was something about his demeanor, something about his stature, something about his composure that set him apart. We probably have met people like that, that we just take notice of them right away. Well, Moses was that kind of an individual because he was no ordinary individual, it says in Scripture. So let's pick up. Um, the narrative again in Acts chapter 7 now, beginning with verse uh, 23. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. Now, interestingly enough, the question I uh, raised in my own mind as I kept looking at this passage over the years is what compelled him to actually do that? Well, first of all, we know that the person that was hired to raise him was actually his real mother. And so undoubtedly, she seized every opportunity to go and pass on to him the heritage and tradition of his background. And so probably out of just absolute curiosity, uh, he feels a kinship and he wants to go down and visit the people that he came from. So when he's 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. And he was an Egyptian, or at least by in name, uh, in, in name anyway. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. So interestingly enough, he takes the life because he was operating out of his passion. Moses thought that his own people— would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. So apparently, Moses had a premonition of his calling. Don't, we don't know because the Scripture is not clear uh, what constituted the details of that calling. But like many of us, when God is leading us, we feel it viscerally. We feel uh, a drive to move in a particular direction or to embrace a particular cause or to um, you know, identify with a particular group, not knowing the total reason why. My suspicion is that was probably Moses's case at, at this particular point. So anyways, so we see this passage now, and, and concluding again with verse 26, where he says, um, the next day Moses came upon three Israelites. They were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you're brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? Um, and so Moses had this premonition of his calling. He acted upon his current understanding. And so many of us, Bill, I think one of the lessons we have 
we get a strong impression from God that we're to move in a particular direction, but we're absolutely hesitant to pull the trigger and initiate whatever action we're being led to do because we don't know all the details. We don't know. We can't see that far in, into the future or to understand what the implications of our action are going to be. And sometimes that petrifies us in place mm-hmm. where we don't move at all. And where God has given us an inclination or the impetus to go ahead and do something without telling us in full detail what we can expect and what the results are going to be. So we who are of little faith want to know more details before we take that action. I talk to men all the time, Bill, about the inconvenient moment. The inconvenient moment is when God lays on you Uh, a desire to um, move in a certain direction or initiate a certain action based on a circumstance, an event, or an encounter. And oftentimes, we're not ready for it. We're not feeling particularly spiritual. We may have been uh, in an argument with our spouse uh, prior to that opportunity being laid before our feet. Uh, We see the agenda that we have to keep that day, and we have to rush off to meetings, and we often use that as an excuse not to move on the uh, visceral um, feeling that we've been given to engage. We might walk across or buy somebody's cubicle. They may be in tears. We feel this pull to stop and to engage them and find out what's the matter and try to be of service to them. But the tyranny of the urgent pulls us away, and we lose the opportunity to engage the inconvenient moment. And Greg, you said, yeah. Oh, and Jesus certainly models that because oftentimes he'd be on the way somewhere and he would be interrupted. And I just put interrupted in air quotes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that happened to him repeatedly, but he always had the time, didn't he? Yes, he did. He was never in a hurry. Never. And he has declared more than once that he had to be about his father's business. And I think what he did is he recognized this is part of my father's business. Mm-hmm. Can I interrupt right now? Can we take a little sure. break? Sure. Terrific. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion in Acts chapter 7. Be right back. Yes, Dr. Greg Borgon. You can go to heartofawarrior.org. Learn more about Greg, heartofawarrior.org. All right, Greg, let's pick up where we left off. Yeah, uh, just to finish our thought about the inconvenient moment. Oh, yeah. This was, a, this was an inconvenient moment for Moses, but he submitted in obedience for all the information he had at that moment to do what he felt God was leading him to do, even though he didn't necessarily connect all the dots to what was going to be the result of that engagement. And so the lesson for us is, is that when God gives you an opportunity, like an inconvenient moment, and even though you're not feeling particularly equipped or spiritual or ready to engage that moment, or you feel pressed by a schedule that you're trying to keep, we need to submit an obedience and engage it. And oftentimes when we do, we rarely remember what we said during that moment 
But we do conclude at the end, I'm so glad I did that because God showed up. And we're always happy that we took the time to engage that inconvenient moment, much like what Moses is doing right now. Mm -hmm. You know, he had a premonition of the calling. He acted upon his current understanding. He felt he knew uh, God's calling on his life, at least up to that particular point in time. And he felt he was the agent of reconciliation. Now we'll pick up on verses 27 through 29 of Acts uh, chapter 7. But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Now, when Moses heard this, he fled to Median, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. What a large gap. (laughs) So all of a sudden he's found out it didn't turn out like he thought it was going to. I imagine as he was running into the desert, he might have had a dialogue with God, something like like this. Don't you understand, God? I could have been a contender. <laughs> I could have led your people. Mm-hmm. I thought I was operating out of some clarity about your call on my life to lead your people to safety and to freedom. And what am I leading now? Sheep. So <laughs> he, he probably was a little bit bitter, maybe a little bit skeptical, maybe a little bit cynical, but there's a wide span of time. I mean, it's just the same thing that happened with Paul at the road to when he was knocked off the horse on the road to Damascus, and he went to the apostles and engaged them in conversation. And then there was 10 years that uh, elapsed between that encounter initially with the apostles before he actually involved his act, got involved in, in his active ministry. Now, in this case, Moses' uh, time span was 40 years. So his flight was the result of rejection. He was dismayed over their response. He took matters into his own hands. He chose to flee and start over. Um, He could have been a contender, as we just discussed. Now he's leading sheep instead of men, literally on the backside of the desert. Um, What he didn't realize, Bill, and what we often don't realize when we think we've been put on the bench, or in this case, on the backside of the desert, um, and we think we may have done something wrong when God is using that opportunity to train us for something that doesn't even exist right at the moment. So it could be 10 years. It could be 40 years. It could be three months. It could be a couple of weeks. But even that gap of time causes us to wonder, did I make a mistake? Did I misread God? When in effect, what we ought to seize uh, is this opportunity that God's given us to be faithful to what's in front of us at the moment in anticipation of something that may not even exist right now. So he entered God's training program. So we pick up the story Hmm. in chapter 7, verse 30 now. So verse 30 says, after 40 years, that's the gap uh, of time between his running into the desert, and uh, all of a sudden now there's going to be some clarity of, of what happened or why he had to wait for those 40 years. An angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, 
Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. So then um, it says in, in this passage, the Lord said to him, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you to Egypt. So all of a sudden now, he gets this amazing calling after 40 years of relative silence. And, but if you were going to lead, Bill, millions of people over a long period of time in unfamiliar territory, wouldn't it be important for you to learn how to navigate the desert, how to forage for food in the desert, <laughs> Would it ever? how to look for signs of life in the desert, how to um, prepare for the uh, quick changes in environmental conditions in the desert. So what Moses didn't realize, and which I'm stressing right now, he was on a 40-year training plan in anticipation of leading millions from Egypt across the desert to the promised land. So he was on this amazing training program that he didn't recognize at the time. But that 40 years was meant to prepare him for this calling he now receives uh, at the end of verse 34. So God didn't tell him ahead of time. He didn't say, Moses, I'm going to probably respond in a way you don't expect after you kill the Egyptian and to compel you to run into the desert. Um, I'm going to wait for 40 years to give you your calling, but I want you to know that that calling will lead to saving millions of people that are going to be my nation. Now, God didn't tell him any of that in advance. And that's what we kind of look for before we even take the first step, don't we, Bill? Mm -hmm. We want to know all the details. We don't know what the result is. But God expected Moses to take a step of faith, to trust him. And then he would reveal a little bit more about what he was planning for him. So God had been painting a mural. I'm familiar with this illustration I was told some time ago about this person who had almost lost their sight was brought to a museum to appreciate these amazing works of art that he could hardly see. The only way he could get a sense of what that piece of art looked like was to get very close and sometimes to touch the piece of art, which is not what you should do in a museum, but he touched the piece of art and he noticed there were dark colors and there were bright colors. And what he concluded from that experience was that these amazing works of art how God operates in our life is going to be a mosaic of dark and light that's going to provide this amazing contrast of God's involvement in our life, preparing us for something that's going to have significant impact in terms of his redemptive purposes. And it takes dark colors and it takes bright colors. Isn't that a powerful illustration? Mm, it's though? so powerful. Yeah. So anyway, he revealed his purposes at the right moment. Uh, so let me go quickly to the last part of the passage, beginning with verse 35. This is the same Moses that had rejected, they had rejected with the words 
uh, who made you ruler and judge. He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. Hmm. You see, he began to realize his full potential. He understood that he was experientially qualified and that, and this is the key, Bill, there is no waste in the economy of God. When you take a look at the landscape of what happened to Moses over some 60 years, including the 40 years in the desert, actually 80 years, 40 years um, before he went into the desert, and then, of course, what happened after it for another 40 years, a total of 120 years, um, there's just no waste in the economy of God. There's no coincidence. There's no wasted effort that God is behind the scenes working in our lives to prepare us for things that may not even exist at the moment. And we just have to trust him mm-hmm. and engage the moment yeah. and be honest about it. Powerful. And that's an amazing story about yeah. Moses. Thank you so much, Greg. So great to be with you today. Have a wonderful rest of the week. All right. Thanks a lot, Bill. You bet. Dr. Greg Borgon has been my guest. We'll take a little break. When we come back, Rebecca Hagstrom is going to be joining us talking about a classical education. That's all up next. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.